Good morning, church. How you guys doing this morning? It is good to be with you all today on this Memorial Day weekend, and I hope you have some fun plans for this weekend. Thank you for watching online. If you're watching online and being here in service, this is your first time here. Again, thank you for being here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. To where we're going to be this morning, I'm Dominic. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to be with you all today. Um, our lead pastor, Pastor Adam, he's uh, gone for a couple of days. He and his wife are celebrating their anniversary, and uh, so uh, we're excited about that. Uh, and this is great because sometimes I wonder which one's going to happen first. Uh, is he going to take some time off of work, uh, or is the rapture going to happen? And so excited to be uh, here with you all. It's my privilege to open up the Word with you. Uh, we are, for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the, the book of Ephesians, in the church of Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, and it's been a lot of fun talking about the context. We've got to see where it was in the world, what was going on at the time, what the politics were like, um, how the church was started, what was going on in the church. And today, maybe you're wondering why we in Revelation, if we're talking about the church at Ephesus. It's because we are looking at that same church 50, almost 50 years into the future. So, so we're, we're taking the DeLorean this morning, we're activating the flux capacitor, and we're going back to the future. We're going to look 50 years into the future to see what happened to this church at Ephesus. And it was, it's pretty interesting, all the stuff that happened. It's obviously, the Apostle John is the one who's recording the words of God here in Revelation chapter 2. He's going to tell us what God thinks about this church at Ephesus. Ephesus. And if you go back and read chapter 1, you notice that Jesus is actually the one speaking here. John's just recording it. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about uh, himself being the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and the seven golden candlesticks. And uh, the seven golden candlesticks, just for reference, they are talking about the seven uh, churches in that area. Uh, and so that makes these words important words because they're not John's words. They're the words of Jesus. And uh, this is God's evaluation of the Ephesian church that we're going to read here in Revelation chapter 2. This is kind of like their year-end review at work, like their report card at school. This is what Jesus is talking about when the, with the church of Ephesus and the other six churches here. This is like their report card. God's going to give them evaluation. He's going to tell them the things that they did that were good, things that they did that were, that were not so good. And, and if you're, you're anything like me growing up, this is a scary moment in your life because when you got your report card, you saw the grades. It was a scary time. And then having to bring that report card to your parents, there was dread in your soul bringing those, at least for me, because I didn't end up when I was in school getting the A, Bs, and Cs like most people. I got the, the, the letters that were farther down on the alphabet that you don't, they made up letters for me in the alphabet to give me grades, right? I didn't get so good. And so this is what is going on in the church of Ephesus right here. God's given them their report card. And we're going to see the grades they got. And to be honest with you, uh, they got a lot of compliments from God. God gave them a lot of A's and a lot of B's there. And God said a lot of good things. But, but, this one piece that they were missing, one grade that they get an F on, and this one piece that they're missing, it affects everything else. So that all the compliments that God says about them, all the good things that God says about them, it doesn't matter because they're missing this one piece that we're going to talk about. So what was it? What did Jesus say about the church at Ephesus? What did they get on their report card? What were the grades? Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, this is obviously Jesus, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Interesting thought here. If these golden candlesticks represent churches, God is saying he doesn't just hold these candlesticks in his hand, he walks among them. He knows what's going on in these churches. He sees all of it. He's aware of everything that's going on. Verse number two, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. So God gives like a half a dozen compliments here. This is all good stuff that, that Jesus is saying about the church at Ephesus. He's giving them compliment after compliment. First thing he says is that they were a hard-working church. These were people, this was a congregation that knew how to work hard. If they needed to be serving, they were serving. If they needed to sign up to help with VBS, they were going to sign up to help with VBS. If there was something going on that required work, they were there. In fact, it's believed that the other six churches mentioned in Revelation, the, the church at Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea were all started from the church at Ephesus. It's a church that knew how to work. It's a church that labored. They were also a patient church, the Bible says. Jesus says about them, you're patient, persevering church. Christianity wasn't some passing fancy to them. Through the ups and downs of their community and their city and their culture, they were consistent. They didn't give up when times got tough. They didn't give up when it cost them something to be a believer. Busyness didn't keep them from church. Inflation didn't keep them from generosity. They kept their faith even when it wasn't culturally fashionable. Third thing is they didn't tolerate evil or sin among themselves. This doesn't mean that they were judgmental or legalistic. It means they desired to live a life that was consistent with the teachings of Scripture. That's all. They wanted to live a life that was pure, that was set apart to God from the world. That's what Paul instructed Timothy to do when Timothy was in Ephesus. Look at this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15. He says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So he gives this same instruction, Paul, the Apostle Paul does, to Timothy when Timothy's in Ephesus. Fourth thing is they understood sound doctrine and they confronted false teachers. And we just heard about this last week and the week before. They took doctrinal purity in their church seriously. If there was a whiff of someone uh, spreading or teaching false doctrine, they called it out. They, 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 they got rid of it before it was able to fester or spread which the church is commanded to do. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul challenges young Timothy again to do this very thing. Look at 1 Timothy 6, verse number 3. He says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but doting upon questions and stripes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And that's what they did as a church. So this church, it got a lot of stuff right. This church had a lot of compliments from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. This church was happening. Now let's just say, just to put this in perspective, let's just say that somehow the church at Ephesus 
back then was dropped here today in Phoenix somewhere. And all of us were like, hey, let's next week go take a field trip and visit that church at Ephesus that is dropped into Phoenix. Let's just, for the sake of a field trip, see what's going on, let's go to that church. And we all went to that church next week, took a field trip. That would be one of the best experiences at a church you'd probably ever have. You would walk out of there thinking the preaching was on point, the worship was awesome, the children's program, everything was straight from the Bible. This is a church. You'd probably say after going to the church at Ephesus, you'd be like, kind of want to go there now. I enjoy Desert Hills and all, but church at Ephesus, that's where it's going on. But, so, so God was pleased with this church at Ephesus, right? Right? God was pleased. Let's look at the very next verse and the very next word in the next verse. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse number 4. He says, Nevertheless, oh, rut row, Nevertheless, nevertheless, what does that mean? It means in spite of all that, in spite of everything you just heard, in spite of everything Jesus had just said about the church, in spite of all the compliments and all the things that they were doing right, there was still something terribly wrong with the church at Ephesus. Let's finish the verse. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. They had left their first love. The problem, the problem is that this church knew how to labor for God, but they had forgotten how to love God. They knew how to work for God, but they had forgotten how to walk with God. And this is what I want you to hear this morning. Being with Jesus is more important than doing for Jesus. We can serve and give. We can study doctrine and hate sin. We can work and labor, but labor without love is just a job, which is why Christianity to us sometimes feels like just a job. If we're to be honest this morning, we're at church, we can be honest. Isn't it true that sometimes we think this whole Christianity thing is just one more thing to do? Oh, got to go to church this morning. Oh, I got a small group today. Oh, I see the offering boxes. Got to give them away my hard-earned money. Oh, I got to serve this Sunday. See, that's what happens when love is disassociated from labor. That's what happens when my walk with God is non-existent, but I'm continuing to work for Him. I can get all the things right. I can understand doctrine. I can serve. I can give. I can do all the things. But if I have left my first love, what good is all of that stuff? It's just me doing things. It's just labor. But labor without love is just a job. Since the time of Christ, this is what the world and the religious have always believed, that God is primarily concerned with my performance. If you were to strip Christianity to its most fundamental and foundational parts, if you were to lay Christianity out on a table and dissect it and see the component parts of Christianity, you'd find that the heart of Christianity, the heart of Christianity is our relationship with Jesus. That's what animates and gives life to every other part of the Christian life. It is our relationship with Jesus. That's it. 
The heartbeat of Christianity is that God found a way to us through Jesus Christ so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could have a relationship not just now and today and tomorrow, but forever. That's the heartbeat of Christianity. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was so that our sin could be blotted out so that we could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the heartbeat of Christianity. Without that in our life, we can do all the things. We can be religious and do religious things, but what is it worth? And look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. He hits the nail on the head. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is the command before all other commands. This is the command behind all other commands. And notice God doesn't command us to labor. He commands us to love. He does not command us to do for him. He commands us to be with him. Being with Jesus is more important than doing for Jesus. So this past week, my wife was, uh, my wife was gone um, in Michigan seeing her, older, uh, her youngest brother graduate from high school. So that means I was home by myself. I was a bachelor for a couple of days. And so I wanted to be a good husband. And, and, and you know, you, you, you try to put in a good effort every once in a while, don't you, husbands? And so I wanted to make sure I uh, cleaned the house uh, and I did the dishes I uh, made the bed, kept the cat area clean, kept the house clean, vacuumed, did the laundry, kind of, made sure the outside lawn was taken care of. Uh, I wanted to do all the things, right? And, and full disclosure, um, I'm a guy just like every other guy, which means I didn't actually do any of this until the, the day she was coming home. And so, but, but it's the thought that counts, right? And so I wanted to do all the things. Uh, because I know, you know, I want my wife to come home after being gone for four or five days. I want her to come home and see a nice house, see everything clean. She'd be grateful for it. But you know what, what's most meaningful for me to do when she's just getting home from a trip? Cleaning the house and doing all the things and all the chores, chores is great. But the most meaningful thing I can do is when she flies in, I pick her up, I drive away, I go to her favorite restaurant in that area, we sit down, we have lunch and just talk, communicate, just be with her. And then after that, maybe go see a movie, have a good time, hold hands while you're watching the movie, and it's a good evening. She sees the clean house, that's the icing on top. Cleaning the house and doing all the things doesn't really mean anything unless I'm with her. And it's the same thing with our Christian life. We can do all the things but being with Jesus, spending time with him, communicating with him, talking to him, that, that is where it becomes alive. That's where it becomes meaningful. The most meaningful you, think you can do today and tomorrow and the rest of your life is to build your relationship with Jesus. And from that place of being with Jesus, what you do for him becomes a display of love instead of a display of labor. And there are lots of Christians who do bunches of stuff for God, but it's empty work because they're never actually with him. There's a great story in the book of, of Luke that I think really illuminates this idea. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse number 38. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's a great story. It says, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he, Jesus, entered into the certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him to her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Mary was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Mary, 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 uh, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Interesting word choice. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Martha was working for Jesus before she was being for Jesus. And you see what happens? She becomes frustrated, angry, and resentful. You see, when we work for Jesus, but we don't actually spend time with him, and we're not being with him, what usually happens is we get burnt out, we get resentful, we start to compare ourselves with other people who aren't doing perhaps as much as we think they should be doing, and we become angry. Mary, however, she was content to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to him, to learn from him, to be with him. And watch this. From that place of being with Jesus, Mary would be empowered to do for Jesus. Which one are you? Which one are you? You Mary? You Martha? Are you doing all the things? And I get it. That can make you feel good about yourself. But are you a Mary? Well, you're being with Jesus. The church at Ephesus was like a Martha. Church at Ephesus was doing all the things. They were working hard, but they didn't have love for God. So what's the fix? What's the fix? What did Jesus say the Ephesian church needed to do to repair their relationship with him? What are they supposed to do when they've lost their first love? Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse number 5. He says, Remember from whence, therefore from whence thou art fallen. Remember. Remember from whence thou art fallen. After Jesus calls out the church for their calloused heart, he tells them how to fix it. And this is awesome. The first thing he says is to remember. That word remember there, it literally means to call to mind, to recollect, to rehearse. So God says to remember, rehearse, reflect on. Reflect on what? Reflect on who you used to be. Reflect and remember from where you've fallen. Jesus was telling them to retrace the series of events that led them so far from God. God was commanding the church at Ephesus to do something that is desperately important for us today, to reflect on the state of yourself. This principle is so important for us today because it's something that in our busy world we rarely do. Reflect on the state of your relationship with Jesus. Reflect on the state of your relationship with your spouse. Reflect on the state of the things in your life. Reflect on the parts of your life that you're struggling in. Reflect, reflect on the parts of your life that are causing anxiety. Reflect on the reoccurring problems and challenges that you experience. Reflect on the state of yourself. The church at Ephesus was blind to their own state. How did they not see what happened to them? That's the question, isn't it? How did they slide so far from God and be completely unaware of it? How does this happen where they're just miles from Jesus and they're still working for him, but they're miles away from him? They're completely unaware. They're oblivious to what's going on. It's because they never took an inventory of who they had become. They had no clue that they were becoming this. This principle is so important for us today. When was the last time you asked God, God, show me me. Show me me. Examine me. 
Try me. This is what David did. You see this all over the place in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 139, verse number 23. Search me, O God, David says. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way of everlasting. And then again, you see this in Psalm chapter 26, verse number 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. He's asking God to do something that is so painful. He's telling God, asking God, look inside of me and then reveal to me the brokenness and the sin and the things that need to change. Show me the parts of myself that should not be there. Examine me, oh God. This is something we don't like to do because it's painful. I get it. But this is something that if we want to grow and continue to grow in our love for Jesus— not just doing for him, but actually loving him. We must ask God, God, show me me. It's like, like a mirror. I have a mirror with me this morning. And I don't need to tell you ladies about the importance of mirrors. You guys live in front of them. And for vain guys, we do too, right? But <laughs> this, this mirror... Obviously, you don't need me to explain a mirror to you. You guys get it. A mirror reflects anything that's put in front of it. Now, you're going to look at the mirror when you get up in the morning. It's probably one of the first things you do. I know it is for me. And most of the time, I look at it, and I look at myself. I'm like, yeah, I need to get rid of that mirror. I don't want to be looking at that thing anymore, you know. (laughs) But we look at it, and the whole purpose that you're looking at it is so that you you can fix all the problems. You don't want to go out in public has something on your face, your eye. You don't want to have runny mascara. You don't want to have the, the lipstick going down here or up here. You don't want to look like the Joker from Batman. You want to make sure everything's good. And so you look at the mirror to fix everything. If I was to tell you, you can no longer look at a mirror for the rest of your life, you would say, well, that's not good. Things aren't going to go so well. But since I'm not looking at myself, well, maybe, maybe that's okay. I don't, that's, that's fine. You'd think to yourself, I need to, this mirror is important. I need to fix the things that are wanting. I need to fix the things that are not in place. This is not a good situation if you don't have a mirror. But are you, are you looking at the mirror of God's word? Are you asking God, God, show me me. Put a mirror up to me spiritually. Show me the inward parts. Show me my spiritual state. Show me where I am in proximity to you. This is what he's talking about. That's what self-reflection is. It's a mirror that shows us our character and our habits and our motivations. But most importantly, it shows us our spiritual need. And again, I get it. Self-reflection is a difficult thing. It's painful. It forces you to look at the parts of yourself that you don't want to look at. Self-reflection confronts you with the parts of you that you try to hide from everybody else. It shows us the truth about ourselves. But I want God to examine my life, and I want to reflect on the state of my life. Why? Because I believe God wants to do a work in me. I believe that God wants to take this ugly piece of clay and make something that honors him from it. I believe that God isn't finished with me yet. I believe that God has a progressive sanctification that he wants to do with my life, that I am not the finished product, that God has something more for me to be and to do and to become. I believe that God's not, he's the, I'm not a finished product, and I want to keep going until the day I die. And I believe that's what all of us want. So we must say, God, show me me. Show me the things of my life. And you see this in Titus chapter 2. 
Verse number 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself. Purify unto himself a peculiar people, a different people that are zealous of good works. That's what he wants us to become. That he want, that's what he wants us to be. You know, when I'm 60 and 70 and 80 years old, I don't want to be dealing with the same problems I dealt with when I was 30. Amen. I don't be dealing with the same habits and attitudes and hang-ups. I hope that I'm able to see some stuff in my life and change it. Amen. I want to be able to look back on my life and be able to see all the things in my life that God was able to change in me. Amen. And hand that over to him. That will never be able to happen until we reflect and say, God, show me me. Let me ask you, when was the last time you asked God that? God, show me me. And actually took some time to allow him to show you. Think. To let him show you from his word. Maybe just in prayer. God, show me me. What is the parts of my life that need to change? For the believer and the unbeliever alike, the only way forward is to see ourselves for who we truly are, sinners in need of a Savior. Isaiah 64, 6 clarifies it. I don't think I can get more clear than this. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You see, if you're a believer, you understand that your eternal position is secure, but we still battle against sin. You've been bought back by the blood of Jesus, but we still fight against our flesh. We still fight against sin. We still battle. We still struggle. is still real. And if we want to continue to be conformed to the image of his son, we need to acknowledge the sin in our life. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus, you don't need me to convince you that this is a broken world we live in. Just look at the injustice and the anger and the division and the divisiveness. And try as you may, you are capable of the same things. The only way forward is to acknowledge our sin and brokenness. That's the starting point. And again, this is what David said when he was confronted with his sin. When he had committed his sin with Bathsheba, he'd gotten away with it, he thought, for a year. And then finally the prophet Nathan comes up to him, and he has this conversation with him. In that epic moment, he says, Thou art the man, calls him out on his sin after a year. And he was going to face, face punishment for what he had done, David. But look at David's response when he's called out by God. He says, Have mercy upon me, Psalm 51, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Verse number three is so important. He says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You know, I had to go to the dentist this past week, and I hate going to the dentist. It's the worst thing. And I know everybody doesn't, nobody likes going to the dentist. I especially don't like going to the dentist. And the reason is, is because. It's never, it, it's never a pleasant experience. It's never an experience where I go to the dentist and they say, you know what? Everything's good to go. Clean bill of health. You can be on your way, Dominic. It's never that. They always, they, they take me into the room. They sit me down. They put the thing in my mouth to take pictures of all of, my, all of my teeth. And then they throw them up on the screen and they start looking at them. And it's never like, your pearly whites are looking good, Dominic. It's always a long pause to say, oh, oh, oh. We're going to have a little work to do today, Mr. Calmetta. And they take me to the other room, 
why the other room? I don't know. But they take me to the other room, and they put this pink little bib on me. They lay me down in the chair, <clears throat> and some little lady comes in, couldn't have weighed more than a buck ten. She says, so we're going to need to do some fillings, and um, we're going to need to do some other things. And while she was talking, she was talking about anesthesia. And I was like, <laughs> I, can't believe, I couldn't believe the words because they were coming out of my mouth, pink bib on me. I mean, I have to get some shots. <laughs> she's all, she's all, she's all, uh, uh, she's trying to, you know, let me down easy. She's like, oh, I don't know. It might be a last resort, only if they have to. I had to get two shots, you know. But they ask you. They ask you. They, they, they throw up the pictures in front of you of all of your messed up teeth, and they say, okay, this is what we need to do. This is what's going to happen to your teeth if you let it go. They're gonna fall, they, you know, they give you worst case scenario. This is what's going to happen, and these are all the things that are going to go wrong. And then they ask you, do you want to take care of that today? And they're like shaking, do you want to take care of that today? You know. And I'm thinking to myself, I have two options here. I can forestall my pain. I can say, you know what, I don't want to deal with it. Or I can say, it's going to cost me a ton of money. It's going to hurt. My mouth is going to be drooping the rest of the day. Let's get it over with. You know, when God confronts us with sin, when God confronts us with the parts of our life that we don't want to confront, we can either say, I'm not going to deal with it, or like David, we can say, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me, and I will deal with it. God, I want you to deal with this in my life. It's going to hurt. It might be painful. There's some things that are not going to be so, that, that are not going to be pleasant. But God, you are creating me into the person you want me to be. This piece of clay can be your masterpiece if I acknowledge it and I let you do your work. See, God told the church at Ephesus to remember, reflect on the state of themselves. That's the first step in reviving our relationship with God. But reviving our relationship with God doesn't just require self-reflection. It requires action, a kind of action. So let's continue. He says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works. So God says, repent and do the first works. Interesting word choice. He's saying, turn around. Turn around, repent. So repent is, turn around and do the things you did when you first loved Jesus. Turn around, look at the things you did when you first met Jesus, and then do those things. What's he saying? Remember, reflect on the state of yourself, and then live as if you are in love with Jesus. They weren't, they weren't currently in love with Jesus. He's telling them, do the first works. Live as if you were in love with Jesus. Do the things you would do if you loved Jesus. David understood this principle. He says, I thought on my ways, turned my feet unto thy testimonies, that's repentance, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. He says he reflected on the direction of his life, then he turns his feet, he turns around, he repents and changes his actions. You know, so I haven't been married that long, and honestly, uh, I'm not the best husband out in the world. You guys have heard me speak a couple times. I'm always talking about the things that I've done wrong as a husband. Um, but every once in a while, I'm able to do some marriage counseling with, with couples. And almost without exception, the couples that I've met with that experience some type of strain or tension in their marriage uh, no longer 
do the things they did when they first got married. Now, there may be much deeper problems than just that, but almost without fail, they've stopped going on regular dates. They've stopped having consistent, meaningful conversations, as in conversations that didn't revolve around work or the kids. They've stopped praying together as a couple, and they've stopped spending daily time and weekly time alone as a couple. These are all things you instinctively do and want to do when you first fall in love with someone. No one needs to tell you this. This is just something you do. It's something you want to do. You can't get enough of spending time, conversations, doing stuff together. But as the years go by, and as your relationship ages, those things stop being instinctive. You stop going on dates. Life gets busy. You stop communicating. You don't have enough time. You're tired. And as a result, you drift apart and your relationship can begin to feel stale. You might even start to think that the only reason you're together is because you share so many responsibilities. So what's the fix? What's the fix? All the things you used to do instinctively, make plans to do intentionally. All the things you did at the beginning, begin to do again. And as you do, you'll come to love that person not just like you once did, but deeper than you once did. And so it is with our relationship with Jesus. Imagine you loved him. What would you do instinctively? Well, you would spend time with him in prayer. You wouldn't be able to get enough of it. You would read every word he's written to you, and these are words written to you. You would go to all the places he loved to hang out at. Well, make a plan to do that. All the things you used to do when you first loved Jesus, do those things. Maybe those things aren't instinctive. Maybe you don't want to do those things like you once did. That's okay. That's okay. Begin to do them again anyway. What you used to do instinctively, make a plan to do intentionally. And as you do, you will come to love Jesus, again, not just like you once did, but even deeper than you ever have. One commentary said this about our relationship with Jesus. He says, it isn't that we expect that we should have the exact same excitement we had when everything was brand new in the Christian life, but the newness should transition into a depth that makes the first love even stronger. The reason why many of us struggle to see Christianity as anything more than just one more thing to do is because we don't intentionally pursue Jesus. We do things for Jesus. We don't intentionally pursue Jesus. I'm talking about spending undistracted time talking to him in prayer. I'm talking about planning to spend time getting to know what he's written to us. I'm talking about spending time in the places that he is in. These are the practical things you would do in any relationship. Our relationship with God is no different. Do the first works. Do the things that allow you to be with Jesus. Are these things an intentional part of your day. I'm not talking about the things you do for Jesus. I'm not talking about serving and, and helping out. I'm talking about are you intentionally pursuing Jesus and spending time with him? See, that's what it means to be with Jesus. God hasn't gone anywhere. Jesus hasn't stopped wanting to be a part of your life and day. He hasn't stopped wanting to be with you. It's we've stopped pursuing him. 
You see, 1 John 4.10 says this, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. This morning, we have the opportunity to begin again. If you're a believer, decide to do the things you would do if you loved Jesus. If you've never met or trusted Christ, you can begin again. The Bible calls it being born again. Born in the family of God as a child of God. Make that decision. I want to leave you with one thing. There's this uh, story I, I heard growing up. I grew up in church most of my life since I was four or five, and there's this story I heard probably a half a dozen to a dozen times. It's the story of um, a newly married couple, and uh, they, would, uh, they would drive their pickup truck to wherever they were going. And it was back in the day when you had just one seat in the truck, right? It wasn't just a seat and a seat, and there was a console in the middle. It was just all one seat. And so this newly married couple, <clears throat> she would, he'd be driving, and she would be scooting right next up to him, right on the seat, as close as she could get, and just kind of hold his arm while he's driving. And that's how they would be as a, as a newly married couple. She just loved him so much, and he loved her so much. Then as the years go by, she would be over here on the opposite side of the cab, and he would be over here. And she commented one day to her husband of many years at this point, she said, man, don't you miss the days where, you know, we would sit so close together, and I'd put my arms around you, and we would drive everywhere just like that? And he replied to her, yeah, I do like those days. I didn't move. You did. See, when we drift, God's never moved. It's not God who left his first love. It was the church at Ephesus that left their first love. This morning, don't just do for Jesus. Be with Jesus. That's how we come back to our first love. Let me pray for you.